0: You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament. Uh, About halfway through, you're going to find the Psalms. Uh, Just keep going uh, a little bit to the right, and you'll find Proverbs, and then right after that, you're going to you're going to come to Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got some on the back table that is our gift to you. I want you to go grab one of those. Uh, don't leave here without one if you don't own one, okay? Listen, if you're, if you're uh, new with us this morning, we spent basically the whole academic year uh, up to this point, and like it or not, Let's be honest, our culture does revolve around the academic calendar. Uh, we've spent this academic year looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, working through the whole of it. We're, we're really coming to the the end of that. We're in the last four or five sermons. Uh, Easter will kind of break that up, but in the last four or five sermons of this series. I hope this series has been a blessing to you if you've been here. Uh, what we've found in this book is a person that who calls himself the teacher or the preacher. we found a person who is determined uh, to show us that our attempts at trying to fill our lives and fill our souls with anything other than the God that we were made for, that those attempts are vain. That they're meaningless. This week we take a final look at a, at a consistent theme of this book, Expectation. He's, we've talked about it in a bunch of different ways. He's talked about it in a bunch of different ways Uh, literally, expectation is how we think things should go. But expectations are inevitable, right? I mean, we all have them. Uh, That's part of the way that we, we help bring order to our world. They're good things. But As you've probably heard, the problem always comes when we take things that are good and we make them ultimate, right? And when we make them ultimate, that is when they become meaningless. They become meaningless. So if you have your place in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. Let me remind us, as we come to this time, this is God's Word, which means it's not uh, some random book that the church decided to pick. Like, let's go with this one. Uh, We are not hearing helpful tidbits from Rick, thankfully. Instead, we're hearing from God's Word, and God, as our Creator, Gives his word as a way to reveal himself and lay claim on us. So let's hear it in that way. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. So even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense and says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. The iron is blunt, and one does not sharpen the edge. He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. This is God's word, given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come before your word, we acknowledge our need. We are people who need our ears opened and our hearts softened to receive your grace and to receive your word. And so we ask that you would do that. Preach your gospel to us, Lord. Let Christ come to the fore. Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, because, Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. And so visit us with them now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. The definition of the term self-evident, self-evident, the definition of that is something that is clearly true, requiring no proof or explanation. Now, we hold many things to be self-evident, do we not? Uh, however, many of these things, if not all of them, and I tend to favor them being all of them, are based on things that we believe by faith. Whether you consider yourself a person of faith in this room here or not, self-evident truths are faith claims. They're faith claims. And from those commitments, from those Faith commitments, we then base expectations. Now, if I'm being honest with you, when I first looked at this passage, as many of you just did uh, for the first time, it seemed to me to, it seemed to me to be a, a loose collection of maxims, like there was nothing holding these things together at all. And as I stared at the text, and I mean that literally, stared at the text uh, on Monday, especially it was like, what? am I going to say about this? Um, as I stared at the text, it seemed that there were a couple of things the teacher was trying to unmask, and both struck against common expectations. So we're going to look at those two things, and then look at how the Christian gospel speaks to them, okay? There's an outline in your Bible, if that's helpful for you. We're going to look at expecting a good perception. We're going to look at expecting less risk. And then finally, we're going to look at new expectations, or expecting more, okay? You ready? Ready? All right, let's get started. This first section deals with the expectation of a good perception. What do I mean by this? Uh, namely, namely, I mean this. Every one of us in this room believes that we can control other people's perceptions of us. That we can somehow um, control the way people see us, or at least the people that we care about. Because let's be honest, there's some people that we don't care about. Some of you are here, you're seeing me for the first time, like, I don't care what that dude thinks of me. I know. But the, the people that you care about, those people you think you can control their expectations. And the teacher here in this text deconstructs this with a couple of different word pictures. Now the first deals with dead flies and perfume. That is bizarre. Let me just say that front. If, if you've never read the Bible before and you're coming and you're hearing this and you're like, that's bizarre, don't worry. People who've read it like every day for the last 70 years think that's bizarre too. Okay, we're, we're all together in that. Um, but the point is basically this. And again, we, we don't have a lot of context for this because it's, it's culturally removed from us. But his point is this. A little fly drops into a vat of perfume and it stinks up the whole thing. And scholars will tell you there's some kind of fermentation thing that goes on and all this stuff. That, that's not the point. But he, he says in the same way, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Okay? Now I'm going to keep going and then I'm going to draw the strings together. So let me cover all these. All right? Look at, Verses 2 and 3 really cover the same idea. Wisdom and folly travel very different roads. They travel very different roads. Um, and in verse 3, the fool, in fact, broadcasts his foolishness without even knowing it. He thinks he's kind of keeping himself uh, hidden, but he's not. People can see him, okay? That's the way foolishness works. Now, most of us are thinking right now, well, that's, that's great, Rick, but what does this have to do with me, Right? We think that because none of us think ourselves fools, We may think we, at times, maybe we do some foolish things. Right? Some of us grew out of that a long time ago. Others of us, you know, we're still in the midst of it. We do foolish things, but we're not fools. We're pretty good. We're pretty wise. We're not super wise, but we're pretty wise, and we pretty much have it all together. At least that's what we want to present. When we think of a fool, uh, we're thinking of that, You know, Yahoo in the jester's outfit kind of trying to make everybody laugh. The guy who's just acting goofy and, you know, all that stuff. He just doesn't get it. But the Bible paints a very different picture. It it goes a little something like this, right? The fool is the one who rejects the notion of an ultimate personal God. He is one who is governed by his desires, who speaks on topics he knows nothing about, who doesn't seem to learn from his mistakes, who can't control his anger, who is arrogant and thinks too much of himself, who hates discipline, and who is easily insulted. Get the point? Offended yet? Should be. Okay? In the Bible, wisdom is something, wisdom, the category of wisdom, is something that begins with an understanding of who God is, and then puts the rest of us in our proper position underneath. Foolishness, Folly, on the other hand, is something that places ourselves too high on the totem pole. Literally. you with me? And so I doubt, if, I doubt anyone in this room if press would be willing to say that foolishness is not part of who we are. It is. The problem comes with admitting that we tend to walk the road to the left instead of the road to the right. As the teacher says in verse 2. Right? We tend to walk that road of foolishness. We, we like to think we can control people's perceptions of us, but we can't. Look, I'm not talking about mistakes. I had the mother of all mistakes uh, last week. Um, every three months or so, we have a class here called Engage Holy Cross, and I was teaching it last week. I looked down at my outline and realized um, I had uh, written down one of the Bible verses wrong. It was mislabeled. Now, by that, what I mean is not that I said something was in Matthew, but when it was in John, what I mean is that it was meant, the reference was supposed to be Titus 1, and somehow the U got left out. It was the mother of all typos, literally. Um, some of you are like, I cannot believe he just said that in church. He did. All right. Look, I'm not talking about that. That is a mistake, okay? Mistakes happen. Uh, what verse 3 is talking about is that we think we can control people's perceptions of us, but we can't. People see us. People see you. They see me. They see, what we aren't, uh, that, they see that we aren't what we want them to think we are. You expect that you should be able to control people's perception of you, But a little folly infects everything. And your foolishness, no matter how hard you try, is on display for everyone to see. Some of us get that, right? And so we don't look to present a face, but we look to get a position for respect. Look down at verses 5 to 7. If you can. If you've been here any time and heard different sermons in the series, you've probably heard something like this before. The teacher seems pretty miffed at this reality. And the, the reality is basically this. Fools seem to get into high positions, and those who are qualified for those positions don't get them. They're, they're walking on the ground, right? Um, they, they don't get it. Now, you and I can get all hung up in all the rich and slave talk. That is because we are, um, that is a hair-trigger on our culture for socioeconomic issues. But that has little to do with what the teacher is saying. His point here is that the position doesn't make the person. The position doesn't make the person. Here's what I mean. He says, Folly is set in many high places. Now listen, some of us in the room think that if we can get a high position, if we can get a few letters after our name, if we can get a a better uh, role in the church, that... That people won't see how broken we are. And what he's saying is, folly is set in high places. In other words, you can still see the folly even though it's raised up high. In fact, his implication may be it's better displayed because it's raised up for everyone to see it. We expect that we can manage the way others see us by gaining a position. Right? Some of us, like I said, that, that for some of us that means academic degrees. Uh, for others, it's the leadership of a business or a ministry. For others, it's having others come to us for advice. I'm the one that people come to, to learn how to uh, you know, uh, raise their kids or, or, um, or fix something or, or manage things. And we are hoping that we can hide behind the position and that the position will prove that we really are okay. We're actually pretty good. And the teacher is telling us that it can't. All right, what do both of these things end up dealing with? This. You and I both know that we are not okay. That things are not right. But at the same time, we generally go about our day trying desperately to keep others from seeing that. And we expect that we can We expect that our facade is actually believable to everyone else. That they can't see the little blemishes that we know are there, that we're trying to hide. Well, just look at this side of my face, you know. We think we can keep them from that. And this is a place, friends, where the Bible actually tells us something about ourselves we already know, at least to some degree. Now, knowing isn't the same as being willing to fully admit it. But we do know it. You and I know that there is something wrong with us. We all have a sense we don't measure up. When I say that, some of you are tempted to to argue with me. You don't need to pretend here. You don't have to pretend in this place. Look, there is a thriving industry in this country called self-help. The entire point of it is to help you measure up. That's the entire point. And there's another thriving industry of drugs, both legal and illegal, that is meant to mask the fact that you don't measure up. To help you forget about the fact that you don't measure up. Look, I don't care if your life is outwardly a train wreck or whether it looks nice and sparkly. We are all hoping that we can keep people from seeing what we know and what the Bible says is true about us that we are broken, we're fools. And so we have an expectation that we can control perception. That expectation, though, can't hold that hope, as the teacher says, because the fool broadcasts who he is. But there's another expectation, too, that we can control risk. Look down at verses 8 to 9. In these verses, we have four professions. We've got the well digger, we've got the wall builder, we've got the stone quarrier, and then we've got the lumberjack, okay, the logger. Now, we need to understand that when it says the one who digs a pit, he's not talking about Joe Average. He's not talking about Rick going out in the field and digging a pit. He's talking about someone for whom it is their line of work. And notice what happens to each of these. They are wounded by their work. The digger falls in. The wall dude gets snake bit while he's tearing down the wall. The dude in the quarry gets hurt by the stones. And and the logger gets hurt by the logs. Okay? So what? What? I want you to think of these guys as experts. Now look, a year or so ago, maybe it was a little more than that, Peter Driver and I uh, decided it would be a good idea to cut back one of my trees. Which is a nice phrase for doing a nasty hack job, okay? There were at least three instances in which I was convinced myself, Peter, or both of us was going to get seriously injured or killed. Now, that is not to say... I mean, don't get me wrong. Peter's insanely good at these things. I am not. My degree is in divinity. Not in arbory or whatever you call that, okay? Uh, Peter's insanely good at stuff like that. But when you are trying to use a chainsaw with one hand (laughs) while holding on to the trunk with another like this, someone is going to die. (laughs) It is amazing that we didn't have an accident. However, I would not expect that someone who knows what they are doing would be in that same position. No offense. Okay? Experts know how to mitigate risk. They are skilled and wise. They have had failures and training that work together to keep failure away. And yet. Right? That's the whole point. In this passage, even experts can't keep failure away. One would expect that such things wouldn't happen when you are skilled, when you've been trained, when you know what to do, and yet, you can't possibly account for all the variables. Now, some of us think we can, right? As a matter of fact, that's all we try and do up here. We try and account for every variable. We expect that if we are skilled enough, we can keep failure at bay, and if failure happens, it's because we didn't try hard enough or or get enough information, or we're devoted enough. And that brings us down to verses 10 and 11. And really, just verse 11, look there. If the serpent bites before its charm, there's no advantage to the charmer. Okay, snake charming. Snake charming. Let me put some of your minds at ease. This is not a church where you're going to find anyone playing with snakes. Okay? Which, by the way, one would think that you would question your interpretation of a certain passage of Scripture if when the guy holding the snakes gets bitten and dies, then maybe you were wrong with that passage, okay? Uh, but apparently not. Anyway, let's, let's keep going. That's, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Snake Charming okay? Snake charming is the notion that someone can do something, music, magic, or whatever. Someone can do something that will entrance a snake and place them under the power of the charmer, right? You've probably seen the, you know, the videos or the, or the cartoons of the little dude with the turban and and the snake's coming up out of the basket, and he's dancing, right? That's snake charming, okay? Um, In the ancient world, someone who could do this was seen as incredibly skilled and wise. We don't Tend to see many of those on the street corners. A better example of this, interestingly enough, uh, would would be the croc hunter, right? Steve Irwin. If you ever watched the crocodile hunter back when when um, he was he was on TV, what you would see is someone who a needed a lot less coffee um, and and b knew exactly how to be around animals. The problem is is that on September fourth, two thousand and six, while waiting in some shallow water filming some stingrays, one of those stingrays confused him for an attacking uh, shark and stabbed him several hundred times in the chest with its little tail barb in in the span of a, a couple of seconds. And he died. That is the image here. That is the image here. Someone who knows exactly what they're doing. Someone who has all the training, all the skills, and yet, and yet. It is it is the, what, what's being talked about here is the charmer's work being foiled by the fact that the snake bit before it was charmed. He didn't work fast enough. His skill didn't matter at the end of the day. Why? Because you and I cannot get our arms around chaos. We think we can, but we can't. Look, you know this, I know it. We are small. And that even on our best day, when we are hitting on all cylinders, some things just happen. They just happen. Yet in spite of this, we still expect that we should be able to keep chaos away. We believe, which is to say we see it as self-evident, that we should be able to control our environment. And when we can't, we believe it was due to our own, or more likely someone else's, uh, lack of effort. We expect that we should be able to reduce risk, if not eliminate it, with effort, skill, and expertise. But the teacher here is telling us no. Okay. So we move pretty quickly through this text. I want to do that on purpose because all of this is great, but it never asks the question of why. And I want to spend some time exploring the question of why. Why do we expect that we can control perception of us? Why do we expect that we can make ourselves seem right? Why do we expect that we can keep chaos at bay? Why do we expect that we can uh, keep ourselves safe? Let's let's explore the source. The teacher has made it clear that these expectations are meaningless. But if this is true, and we know this to be true, on some level we know it, why do we keep doing it? Let's start with the first one. Why do we believe we can or that we must control people's perception of us? Well, the scriptures tell us a story of how things began, right? Right? That speaks to this. That they began well. That God created everything, called it good, and that included us. And that he made us for a relationship with him, but we turned from that relationship because we believed the lie. The lie was namely this. That we can be like God, we can be like him, and that we must be like him. We must be because he was not out for our own good. And so we betrayed him. Listen, this this is the key point for us. We sought our life, our identity, and our meaning apart from him. We sought to define good and evil on our own because we didn't want to depend on him. And this is what the Bible calls sin. It's It's not so much breaking rules as it is a relationship. And when we did that, we became guilty. In other words, we went from being in the right to being guilty. This is the state that the Bible says we are all in by nature. Now, think about that for a minute, because nobody thinks that's popular, right? That's certainly not popular, nor is it widely understood. The Bible says that everyone is born a sinner. We don't become sinners by what we do. Now, listen, some of you are in this room, and just saying that is deeply offensive to you. Because you've been spending your whole life keeping this thing clean right here. Others of you hear that, and it's like cool water on you. Because you were convinced that you messed everything up. What I just told you is we're all in the same boat. Whether this is really clean up here or not. We're all in the same boat. We do not become sinners by what we do. We are born sinners, and what we do comes from that. But the Bible says we didn't just become guilty, we also became corrupt. And basically this means we began living out of a self-evident truth. One that began to govern our expectations that we could be like God and that we must be. And that is why we expect that we should be able to control people's perceptions of us. We know we're not right. We know that we're broken, that we are guilty. Guilt is not just a problem of an overactive conscience. It is a very real state that we are in. But because we believe the lie, we think we have to deal with it on our own. We think we have to come up with a way to deal with this. And so we try to convince everyone that we, we really aren't broken. We really aren't that, that bad. We, we try and convince them that, you know, sure, we make mistakes. But those mistakes aren't indicative of who we are. Right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get angry once in a while, but that's not my character. my character. It's stress. Friends, stress never creates anything new. It simply reveals what's there. And see, when we get exposed, we play the blame game. It becomes someone else's fault that we failed. And if that doesn't work, we we play the comparison game. Yeah, 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 I'm messed up. But that dude over there, man, he is really messed up. I mean, I know I'm... I know I'm, yeah, I get it, I get it. I'm not perfect, but that chick, she is jacked. Like, there's something wrong with her. And we expect that should work, right? But it can't. It never solves the problem. Looking at that dude over there never changes you. It never changes you. It can't deal with your guilt before God. And the same is true when it comes to the expectation that we can reduce chaos. Because you see, when we turn from God, when we betrayed Him, the problems weren't simply individual, they were cosmic. They were cosmic. The Bible says that God created everything in creation to line up and to be in relationship with one another. But as soon as we broke out of that, everything came unglued. Everything came unglued. And chaos came to reign. And if that is how the problem came to be, if the problem came to be because we broke relationship with God and everything else came unglued, it would be logical to think that the only way to fix it would be for those relationships to be restored. But instead, we try and do it on our own. And in doing that, not only do we not fix the problem in the first place, we we actually make it worse. Listen, some of you have heard me say this before, but I, I want to make sure all of us hear it enough times that it actually gets into our souls. If the problem is that we have made ourselves independent from God, whether that means through really moral independence or really immoral independence, you cannot fix that independently. And yet we keep doing it. Why? It is because we are trapped in the lie. We are trapped in the lie. We think we can make ourselves look better, raise ourselves up, and keep ourselves safe. We can manage everyone's perceptions and reduce chaos. Because we believe that we Are God. The Bible says that these expectations cannot deliver for us because we simply make the problem worse. They are meaningless. But thankfully, that is not the end of the story. Okay. That that is not the end of the story. If that were the end of the story, we would just kind of go home and be depressed. (laughs) But let me give you another expectation. We expect, it seems to be a self-evident truth, that when someone is betrayed, especially when they are completely guiltless, that they will leave their betrayer to whatever consequences they have coming, right? In many senses, that's not just our expectation, that's what we desire. Well, that's another expectation that God blew out of the water. Because listen, if our problem is independence from God, then we can't fix it ourselves. And thankfully, God has not asked us to. Some of us in this room need to hear this very clearly this morning. God is not asking you to fix your own problem. He's not asking you to clean yourself up. See, this is the beauty about the Christian gospel. The message of Christianity isn't about a morality or a ceremony or a tradition. It's about a person. It's not about a list of dues. It's an offer of duns. The New Testament tells us that Jesus, that in Jesus, God has come to rescue us. The betrayed has come to rescue the betrayer. We turned from him, but friends, he never turned from us. And when Jesus comes, it isn't to teach us a lot of neat things about God. And it's certainly not to give us new rules to keep. He comes to live perfectly. Listen to me. Jesus came to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, and to rise victoriously. For us. And when we place our faith in Him, when I say that, I mean our trust, our hopes, then before God, His perfect life becomes our perfect life. His sacrificial death becomes our death for sin. And His new resurrection life becomes our resurrection life. The Bible says that for those who trust in Christ, that we have been reconciled to God, restored to God. Not those who have cleaned themselves up. Those who have trusted in Him. Now, here's why this pertains to this passage. Friends, you can't control people's perception of you. But if you're trusting in Christ, you don't have to. Look, I don't have to lie to you. I'm messed up. This week, let me be honest, this week I have been clinging to Jesus with my fingernails. I've not been standing on the promises of God. I've been clinging to them. It feels like people are pulling me off of them. I've been clinging to to Jesus and trying to find other places in which to get life from. If that is true of me, and it is probably true of you, but in truth, it is way worse for both of us than we think. But what is true right alongside that is what Paul says uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, it's one of the books in the New Testament, in which he says, here's what's true of me, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I live now, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and died for me. Look at me. I am not right before God. You are not right before God because of your actions. God forbid. But because of His actions. You live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Not because of my works, but because of His. And if, in the midst of my crud, God in Christ calls me Son, I sure don't have to pretend to you that I'm any different. Right? Right? The same thing goes for chaos. Listen, the most chaotic thing in the world, the one thing that whether or not we believe this is the case, most of us have it lingering in the back of our minds that we fear is death. And yet in Jesus, it has been conquered. Jesus rose. And the New Testament says that if we place our faith in him, then on the last day we will rise as well. In other words, death is the penalty for sin, but since Jesus paid for sin, that penalty cannot lay claim on us anymore. You don't have to keep yourself safe because God has given you all that you'll ever need in him. And that gives you freedom. Freedom to risk. Freedom to play in the world that that the Father has made, made for you. The world that the Father has made you an heir of in Christ. Listen, in Jesus, God upended the deepest of expectations. The deepest of expectations is this, that we get what we deserve. In Jesus, God upended all of those. Jesus deserved only life and blessing, but out of love bore death and curse, so that those who should expect only curse and death might receive the blessing and life that we never deserved. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would in the midst of our sin and our brokenness, that you would rescue us. Lord, for those in this room who have never placed their faith in Christ, I pray that you would work in them right now to help them do so. For the rest of us who have, and yet continually struggle, to not just place our hopes and our expectations, I pray that you would help us to place them in you instead. To repent of our sin and to walk closer with you to grow, grow deeper in our faith. We need you. And so we pray that you would meet with us, not just now, but even as we come to this table, for your, the, the good of your name, for the fame that it should rightly deserves, and for our good as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.